Hello everyone to this two-part episode with co-founder of Passive. His name is Brendan Wood and his story is fascinating. Now he was a very, very early Bitcoin adopter and part of the investments that he made in Bitcoin helped him co-found Passive. But what's what was more interesting and fascinating for us was learning about his financial literacy journey. Now he has a background in tech, but the way that he was introduced to finance and what drew him closer and closer to learning how financial structures work and how money works, it was amazing for us to hear. In, in this first part, part episode, we talk a bit about traditional finance because Keegan and I were new to the terms that he was using, um, new in the sense that we'd heard of them, but we didn't really do a deep dive, never had. And it was really awesome to hear Brendan's articulation of, of all of these traditional finance terms and talk about what led him to go um, found passive. So very fascinating conversation. We had to end it abruptly because we were so engrossed in the conversation that um, he had another meeting that he really needed to go to. So we had to stop mid-sentence. But lucky for you, we did a second episode with him as well. And that will be out next week. So stay tuned for that one as well. A couple of really quick housekeeping items before we start the episode. Like you heard in, oh, I don't remember the name, number of the episode, but Keegan and I are going to El Salvador and we're collecting smartphones that you don't need anymore because we asked Michael Peterson, director of Bitcoin Beach, what we can bring and he said that all smartphones that you don't need would be really helpful. So we're taking a couple and if you want to mail them to us, we'll put our mailing address in the show notes. So if you have no use for them, send them to us. If you're in the Atlantic Canada slash Halifax region, maybe we should get together instead of you having to mail it to us. That'd be really cool. And um, I think that was the only housekeeping item. So that's that. Without going on any further, let's begin this very fascinating part one of the episode. The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Mogokshi Palwi, and the guests on the GoFull Crypto podcast are solely their own and are not intended as financial advice. The content discussed is for informational purposes only. Hello, Brendan. Welcome to our podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Where are you calling in from? I'm in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Nice. Fredericton. I love that town. Beautiful river. There's a river that flows through it, correct? There is, yeah. The the St. John River, also known as the Woolstock. There's like a campaign on now to go back to the original native pronunciation, the native name for it, which is Woolstock. And so oh. I, I'm a big supporter of that. Very, very cool. What is it called again? Can you say it slower and louder? Woolstock. Woolstock, okay. Nice. Woolstock River. All right. So you are the founder of you and another Brendan are the founder of Passive. That's right. Two Brendans. We founded a company called Passive. Um, our first employee we hired was also named Brendan for the, for the longest time. It was just like three Brendans working on this together. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, Brendan, the other Brendan, not the employee, but your co-founder, he told us that um, the, some of the gains that you made from your crypto um, is what you used to start up Passive. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So All right. I got, yeah, I, I got into Bitcoin in uh, 2010, and uh, it was never intended to be an investment. It was more like just on the fun, nerdy tech side of things. And it just uh, ended up being something that um, took off. And I had an interest in and I eventually turned it into like a personalized crypto index fund. 
and uh, used the proceeds from that to found a company that had nothing to do with crypto for the first three <laughs> years of its existence. Wow. Okay. So hang on, let's go back to 2010. Cause that's, if you invested or bought in 2010, that was one year after Bitcoin started. So how did you hear about it? Uh, I heard about it on Hacker News. So that's, uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's a community of uh, entrepreneurs. Um, it was a much smaller thing back in 2010. But, Counterintuitive um, to the name uh, Hacker News. <laughs> Hacker News, that's right. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, when, when the topic of Bitcoin came up and it was just posted as like a, you know, link on a message board sort of thing, uh, there was so much negativity around it. People being like, oh, this is just another, you know, e-gold or like it's PayPal, but with a different name. And uh, that was my initial take on it. But then I, I, it came up again and I looked into it deeper and I read a white paper on it, the Satoshi's white paper. And I realized this is not the same thing at all. This is a very different beast. And it actually has like, some novel technical aspects to it that I want to dig deeper into. Oh, wow. So even in 2010, things haven't changed. People still right. think that, oh, it's just something to scam other people or like 10 other thoughts that are initially negative instead of, oh, Bitcoin, that sounds interesting. What's that about? That's exactly right. One of the things that got me into it was... Um, it was probably early 2011 when I started like taking it a little more seriously. And that was... Um, that was around the time that GPU mining was starting to become a possibility with Bitcoin. And that was interesting to me because I was in a master's program at a university here uh, where my research involved using really beefy GPU rigs to do mechanical simulation. So I had access to some really amazing hardware and I thought it was fascinating that people were moving from CPU mining to GPU mining of this weird cryptocurrency. And so that was one of the, the ways that I got in. I actually use these rigs to do some early mining on GPS. So you use the rigs from at your university to mine yes. Bitcoin. Did they ever put a, <laughs> like a frown on about that or did they not know about that? I don't think they ever knew about it, but it also wasn't something like, it's not like these things are running 24 seven for months on end. It was more of like a test thing and I would run it for a day or two and see what it did. And I actually ended up stopping mining. Uh, the, first, the first time I mined, it was like CPU mining on my laptop. And I stopped that after a few days because the computer was otherwise unusable. I'm like, I kind of need a laptop. And after after a day or two of mining, I'd only mined like one Bitcoin. I was like, this is only worth a dollar. This is not <laughs> <laughs> Why am I doing this to myself? And so then I was like, oh, I can use these GPU miners and do that. And again, like within a few days, I was like, if well, I'm doing mining on these things, I can't use them for my research. That's not really helpful, is it? Wow. Only one bit, one dollar for one Bitcoin at the time. I know. I, know. I should have just let it run for like a week and <laughs> <I'm> laughing. <laughs> oh, well, you no one would have or could have even imagined what Bitcoin has become for the world. So when did when Bitcoin that you did accumulate while mining, when did you sell it to the market? Uh, it was sort of a gradual thing. So it's not like there was one moment when I decided, oh, Bitcoin is overvalued, I'm going to sell it all. It was a lot more gradual than that. Um, it's more like it went up in value a lot. I probably had, um, by mid-2011, I probably had like four or $500 worth of Bitcoin. And uh, that was it. And it was just like, oh, well, what can I do with this? I planned on, like, I, you know, I'd mined some, I traded for some, I, I bought some on an exchange. Um, and it was more the nerd side of it for me where I was like, this is really cool. This is like digital gold and I'm going to go buy some products on the internet with this and pay with Bitcoin. And I think that's hilarious. And I went and tried to do it and it turns out nobody was accepting Bitcoin. The only thing I could buy was like a VPN subscription to Mulvad. And so I did that, but then there wasn't really much else to buy. And I'm like, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll just like 
sit on it and whatever. And so, you know, as it successively got pumped higher and higher in price, um, every time it went up, you know, 10x, I was like, wow, this is a lot of money. Maybe I should get rid of some, you know? And so it was kind of a lot of gradual decisions like that. Wow. That's amazing. Did you ever buy on Mount Gox? I did. Yeah. I had an account on Mount Gox. I lost uh, 12 cents in the Mount Gox <laughs> debacles. <laughs> I'm one of the lucky ones. And it was funny to like have any money in there at all, because when uh, Mount Gox was going through its bankruptcy proceedings and there was a uh, it was some sort of like class action suit involved in it or whatever. But because I had an account there and they had my email address, the lawyers for that case were CCing me on all the communications and like, oh, if you want to claim your 12 cents back, here are the steps you need to do. And, you know, in retrospect, I probably should have done it just because it would have been funny to get like a check from Mount Gox for 12 cents. But I, so, I never bothered. <laughs> what was it, 12 cents or was it some amount of Bitcoin? No, it was actually 12 cents. Yeah. Oh, that's I had, funny. Uh, yeah, I had... Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how it went, but yeah, I had like exchanged most of my Bitcoin, most of my dollars into Bitcoin, but there were a few pennies left over and I had already like evacuated all the Bitcoin. And so right. um, there was yeah, just a small amount of dollars that was too small to trade. Oh, wow. Did you ever have any Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies on Quadriga? I did. I, I got through that one by the skin of my teeth. That was also a very scary time. Um, back, Quadriga was like, it was actually my favorite, my preferred Canadian exchange. Me too. Um, yeah, I think they, they provided a really good service for what it was up until it went kablooey. Uh, the first time I cashed out with Quadriga, like I had a bunch of Bitcoin and it had appreciated to a decent amount of money. I thought I'm going to take out, you know, $10,000. And so I transferred the Bitcoin in and I exchanged it to Canadian dollars. And I said, withdraw. And the cheapest withdrawal option was a check. And I said, all right, yeah, send me a check. And so I received a personal check in the mail from Gerald Cotton. It had nothing to do with Quadriga CX on it. It was this guy's personal check from his personal bank account. And I was like, who the hell is Gerald Cotton? Like, what is this guy sending me money for? It's weird. And I cashed it and it worked. And so I didn't really complain about it or anything. But now having known like happened years later, I'm like, I kind of wish I kept that check. It's probably worth more than $10,000 these days. Do you think wow. that was that a red flag for you getting a check from a random person where like in you would think that you'd get it from the company, right? So was that an indicator for you that maybe you should be a little bit more cautious? So you said you got out of Quadrigas by the skin of your teeth. And I, I did too, because of um, weird transactions. I was doing uh, wire wire transfer payouts because uh, I used to have my salary in Bitcoin. I used to have to sell a little bit, pay rent whatever. And then I got a, a wire transfer from his wife's company. I didn't know at the time that it was his wife's company. I was like, well, this is not Quadriga. There's something fishy here. So I just, I just took everything off and happenstantially four months later, it was, it was a good decision. Cause like you said, it went completely. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I'm wondering, was that a red flag for you? Uh, it was a little bit of a red flag at the time, but I had my money and I was, that's, I was happy as far as I concerned. I didn't actually touch the exchange for another year to two years after that. Right. Huh. So it was only a few years later that I again wanted to cash out. And I was like, Oh, you know, I've got, uh, this is the one place I had an exchange with. There was, I think I had an account with like CA Vertex or like, a you know, one of these other yeah. Canadian ones that then uh, disappeared. And so, um, Quadriga was the only one I had like, you know, banking credentials on and the KYC was already done. So I wanted to do something quickly. That was the only option. And so right. there were larger amounts that I put through the next time and I did get paid out. The first one paid out really quickly. And then the second one, which was even larger, did not come. 
like it was supposed to arrive within two days and it didn't show up. And I thought that's a little weird. So I gave it a few days and I contacted their support and they were like, Oh, we're just having some bank troubles. Give us, give us, you know, a couple of weeks. And anyway, it went on for three months and I lost a lot of hair in the process, but they eventually did pay out. Wow. The red flag for me would have been, why am I getting a check from a cryptocurrency exchange? Why am I not getting an e-transfer, a wire transfer for whatever amount? That's that. That's so strange. Oh well, good to know that there is another Quadriga CX survivor out there, <laughs> and Mount Gox too, for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> Unless I those hope, I hope that's were... the last one I have to survive. Like I, I'm, I'm done with crypto exchanges falling over on me now. Uh, so I think it's actually a good thing that here in Canada, at least, uh, crypto exchanges have been put under the um, regulatory authority of IROC, which is great. So now they're regulated just like any other broker dealer, which is. I think a very good thing long-term, even though it's probably very painful for the exchanges at the moment. Do you think that we're past the the phase in, in the whole crypto ecosystem of exchanges going down, maybe not worldwide, but uh, more so in developed nations as uh, like Europe, United States and Canada, they all have kind of woken up to this phenomenon of uh, lots of money being stored in one spot and no accountability or, or recourse for action uh, to recover the funds. Uh, like, do you think we're past that now and exchanges um, are being held to a higher degree of scrutiny and accountability? They're definitely held to a much higher degree of accountability and scrutiny. Absolutely. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean we're totally past it, though. Um, I think we're, we're past the phase where uh, someone could just do an exit scam with with uh, an exchange, right? Like the founders can't just walk out with millions of dollars or tons of Bitcoin, right? Um, I think the persistent danger is more like, at the end of the day, you're securing Bitcoin, which is something where if you lose access to this small bit of data, then the whole thing can be cleared out, right? And they, right. you know, they, they have ways of like mitigating that by breaking up their, their coins into like small independent caches and storing those keys separately and having them in cold storage. And, you know, there's lots of mitigations for it, but at the end of the day, it's still a very small piece of data that you would need to completely wipe out these exchanges. And that's, that's a little bit scary. That's why I still, I would personally prefer to hold Bitcoins in uh, my own, like, you know, cold wallet. Self-custody. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Self-custody. totally. But, but, you know, again, there's issues with that and that, you know, if you want to hold a, a wide variety of different coins, then you're very limited in terms of your options for doing that. Right. On. Well, you know, I want to know, you ended up founding a company that deals with money. And back in 2010, you, when you discovered Bitcoin for the first time, and then finally decided to get into it, take a deeper dive the second time you heard about it, it didn't take you long to make the connection that, oh, this, this is kind of cool. This is not at all like PayPal, according to the thread that you were reading, but it's something entirely different. And years later, you went on to found your own money related to your own company related to money. So I want to know more about how, um, in like how did how did you transition into a finance a finance sort of industry from being a technical co-founder or having a technical degree? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've always had an interest in investing and markets, but I never really got into it too much when I was younger. I started not? saving. Well, I, you know, I never had a lot of money to play with. I think is what it boiled down to, right? Or I thought, you know, ah, this is this is for the big boys to play in, and not uh, you know poor students like me. So I never really got into it. Um, I did actually have a brokerage account when I was probably 22, but again, I bought like one or two stocks and they didn't do very well. And I was like, oh, this is kind of dumb. I don't really want to do that. So uh, I 
the first serious push into investing, I wouldn't even count like Bitcoin and crypto because it was never, it was not an investment from day one. You know, it was, it was fun money that eventually turned into something that was worth being treated as an investment. Um, I started putting money into an RRSP with an employer I was working for and they were doing contribution matching. So it's, you know, free money, you put money in, they put extra money in, why not, right? You should, you should definitely take advantage of that. So I was doing it and the money was being held with Manulife and there was a very limited set of things that we could invest in. So uh, there was like kind of a list of maybe 15 or 20 mutual funds you could pick from. And there were things like, you know, 100% bonds to 100% equity to this is an S&P 500 index. And, you know, like a few different ones. They covered a few of the bases, but at the end of the day, they were all mutual funds. And uh, the fees were quite high on them, which I didn't know at the time. I just picked one. I assumed the fees were being covered somehow by the company or something. And so after doing that for two years, I had accumulated a decent amount of money. And I thought, you know, I'm going to just like read up on what I'm doing with my money. It was, it was, you know, I thought maybe I should be a little more intentional about this. And I read up on it and found that for a basic uh, index fund that I had my money in, they were charging me 1.5% per year. And at the face of it, I was like, that doesn't seem like a lot of money. It's a, it's a small percentage, right? But then I realized like, no, that's actually a very high percentage because if I'm only making, you know, between five and 10% a year, they're charging me 1.5%. That's a huge chunk. And compounded over 40 or 50 years that, you know, I thought, I questioned myself, how much is that actually going to add up to? So I did the math and I realized that by contributing into this fund at the same rate that I was doing, it was going to cost me $1.3 million over the course of my lifetime by continuing to put money in this fund. And meanwhile, there are ETFs out there that track the exact same index and we're charging uh, a tenth of a percent instead of 1.5%. Like, what, what the hell? And I think I re- I, that was like a light bulb moment for me when I realized this is um, essentially like a capture. You know, like my money is in this place and the only things that are I'm allowed to do with it are X, Y, and Z. And it has to be in this place in order to get the contribution matching from my employer. I'm stuck. That's, the, that's literally the only thing I can do with this money unless I start transferring out and all that stuff. And so uh, I started digging into it a bit deeper. I got involved with the Personal Finance Canada subreddit. And uh, that's where I heard about couch potato investing. The idea being, you know, rather than giving your money to a bank or putting in a mutual fund, if you can just buy a few low cost uh, uh, ETFs, um, and there's, you know, there's even model portfolios you can follow, um, just keep putting your money into this set of ETFs according to this rough equity split. And uh, you're basically going to be replicating your own mutual fund and doing it at almost zero cost. And so I started doing that and that was working really well for me. Um, and that's when uh, I started opening more accounts. So I had like, you know, an account for myself, an account for my wife. And we had, I guess, two different accounts each. Then I had some kids and I had an account for my kids' education savings. And all of a sudden this thing that's very simple to do when you have one account became a whole lot more complicated. And, uh, you know, it's not even so much that the math was hard. It's just that like keeping on top of all the money going in, the dividends getting paid and knowing that you have to reinvest and, uh, making sure that you're buying the underweight asset instead of the overweight things and then rebalancing so often, like it's all pretty tedious. And that's when I realized like there's a huge opportunity here. Like this is saving me personally over a million dollars just doing this myself. And it's not that hard. And really the hardest part of it is the tediousness of it, which is something that can very easily be automated. So passive so, was born out of you solving your own problem. That's exactly right. Yeah. I loved it. I loved how you I, walked I, us through that. I definitely want to go back to the 1.3 million number because I want you to break down the math on that. 
Yeah, so uh, I, I guess I won't, I don't think I need, I need to give you the formula directly because you could kind of do the math yourself, but given how much I was investing per month, I think it was like, uh, I was saving two or $3,000 a month, which was a substantial portion of my paycheck, but I was living super frugally and was just like, up it all in the index fund, you know? Uh, you take that money and you kind of compound it over time at an expected growth rate and you compare it to what you would be at, in one sense, 40 years down the road versus what it would be minus the fees. And then you take the difference and the difference was 1.3 million. And to reiterate again, the 1.5% fee, who was charging you that? That's the mutual fund. Manual Life was charging me that. So is that a, a standard rate that is charged across all investment companies? Um, no, that's kind of low as far as mutual funds go. I was in the cheapest mutual fund. That was like, that was the cheapest one they offered because it was an index. And they were like, oh, if you want us to actively manage your money and try to beat the market, then you can pay 2% or 3% depending on, on what it's in. And uh, anyway, if you, if you really dig into it, um, you, you'll find that mutual funds and any sort of like active investment like this, they very rarely are able to generate like positive returns for you. Very rarely do the incremental returns they get by trying to beat the market actually overcome their fees. So over, a, if, if you look at um, the Spiever report, so S&P, Standards & Poor, they put together a report every year where they analyze the performance of mutual funds and other related things. And they compare it to benchmarks, broad market indices like the S&P 500 index or like you know other ones that are out there. <clears throat> and if you look at the performance over a 10-year period or a 15-year period, which is what they do in these reports, you see that 95% of mutual funds underperform the benchmark. Like by default, you're going to lose by putting your money in one of these funds. And when you kind of have that realization, it's like, I clearly shouldn't be doing this at all. We should be doing something else. I should be either managing it myself or putting it in an, an index that's not charging me, uh, you know, one or two percent. Yeah, I'm wondering if you can walk us through the structure of a mutual fund and just provide a little bit of uh, financial literacy for our for our audience and us because we're crypto people. I we actually I don't I don't know about you, but I know I'm, a little bit about mutual funds. I'm not like, huge on it. Yeah, as far as I understand, it's it's like a basket of stocks um, or that are that are essentially guaranteed to grow over well, not, a large not guaranteed. period of time. No. Oh. Yeah, no, this is definitely not mistaken. guaranteed. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> definitely not guaranteed. So, some of them can be guaranteed. So you can get, um, like there, there's lots of different kinds. Uh, you can get ones that are pure, like interest-based ones. So like, it's like you're lending your money by having the money in the mutual fund and they'll pay you interest over it. As you can imagine, they don't pay very much, but it is guaranteed to not be very much, right? And what is the rate? Uh, I don't know the rate off the top of my head, I, but it's probably on the order of like a tenth of a percent or less. Like it's, it's especially with where interest rates are these days, they're super low. Is that a bond? Like is that uh, are bonds, bonds are kind of like that, but um, you, you can get bond mutual funds as well. Okay. Um, those are a little bit different. You actually can lose money on bonds because if interest rates change, then the actual value of the bond changes and uh, negative real yield. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. You can lose money on bonds if you have like a guaranteed interest rate, though. You're not going to lose money, but you're probably not going to make much money either. But uh, yeah, the, the main thing people invest in with mutual funds is uh, stocks, stocks and, you know, like growth type things. You can also invest in commodities, like pretty much whatever. Essentially, what you're doing is you're hiring a fund manager to manage your money for you. And there's, you know, thousands and thousands of different mutual funds out there. They can invest your money any way they want, anything from a passively managed index to something that tracks the value of gold to um, you know, an actively managed thing that's trying to be like a hedge fund and beat the market at every turn. Uh, you can get all flavors, but at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're hiring a fund manager and you are giving them your money to manage for you. 
the actual mechanics of how it works is like, it's not like you're um, handing your money directly to, to an advisor or whatever. It's more like uh, you take your money in this account that you hold with an advisor and you use to purchase shares in this mutual fund. And then the shares in the fund will rise and fall with uh, the, the market. And uh, if you say you want to sell, then at the end of every trading day, they will take whoever wants to sell and whoever wants to buy and just kind of do the swap at whatever the market price is. Then. So as far as those fees go, um, to Murgakshi's question, she was asking you about who, who actually collects that fee. And do the mutual fund managers themselves uh, have fee obligations that they also need to pay? And if so, like who are those fee obligations paid to? Yeah, for sure. So um, one, of, one of my biggest problems with mutual funds actually is less about the fees and more about the transparency behind the fees. Ah, so yes. I know that when I had my mutual fund in my original account, I never once saw a statement telling me how much I paid in fees. Right wow. now, maybe maybe I wasn't looking closely enough. I don't know, but like I looked, I when I actually did start digging for it, I found it very difficult to find how much I had actually paid out over the years. And I think there was actually a regulatory change two or three years ago yeah. where I was just um, say that. there was yeah that was that was added as a requirement where they were supposed yeah. to give you like a dollar amount you paid in fees over a given year, which uh, is kind of amazing that that wasn't there from day one. But it's an improvement, I guess. Um, in terms of who gets the fees, it really depends on the fund structure. Um, funds do have their own expenses, um, you know, like they're, they are receiving money, there's regulatory burden associated with it, they're managing it uh, behind the scenes, they have essentially large brokerage accounts that they're using to buy and sell stocks on the market, and there are fees associated with that that they need to pay. They have the fund managers, the people actually like making the investment decisions and the staffers that they all need to pay salaries for. Um, then there's, if they're tracking an index, they usually have to pay some fees to the uh, index provider, the, the, you know, whether it's standards of poor or, uh, you know, somebody else who's doing the work to figure out here's the index and here's what this should look like. Right. So it really depends, but at the end of the day, the, I, the bulk of the money goes to the investment managers or like, you know, the, the people providing the structure and it, it does work out to a substantial amount of money over time. Um, so when you discovered that, Oh, instead of putting your money in these mutual funds, you, you could put them in ETFs and what was the other term you used? Uh, like a, bro a brokerage account? Is that what you mean? Um, no, the thing that you found out on, on the subreddit. Oh, like, model portfolios? Is that, mm, or, or Canadian couch potato? Okay. okay. What I mean, to, what my question is, um, like, how did you distinguish, uh, or what was one distinguishing factor besides the fees between investing in mutual funds and investing with Canadian couch potato? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Canadian Kids Potato is not so much a fund manager as it is um, like a brand. Uh, it's basically uh, produced by a guy named Dan Bordalotti, who is actually um, an investment advisor at PWL Capital these days. I'm not yeah. sure if that's what, that's what he was doing back when he first created this, but um, essentially he's, he was a, a guy who knew a lot about investing and how to manage portfolios um, in a way that makes sense, given you know your own objectives and so on. And he realized that you know, a lot of people are getting fleeced by mutual funds and, and shady advisors. And so he is developed- it, Is it more so mutual funds though? Or is it the fact that your mutual funds are being um, managed by an advisor? Because if you were to invest in mutual funds, not through an advisor, would it be the same amount of fees that are taken off of whatever profits you make? Uh, an advisor often takes a piece as well. Um, so there's different ways of structuring it, but um, when it comes to like an advisor selling you a mutual fund, oftentimes there are like sales fees baked into the cost structure of that mutual fund and the advisor gets a kickback from it. 
Right. Um, you can you can buy mutual funds directly if you have uh, brokerage accounts. Most brokerage accounts will allow you to buy these things directly, but then there's still the fees associated with it. And those fees are all internal to the fund. So it's not like you're paying additional money to them. It's just that you're losing a little bit of your return every year internal to the fund. Right on. And then in the Canadian Couch Potato subreddit, what did you find? Uh, I found that the... I guess the, the model that was that was being promoted there was don't buy a mutual fund. Instead, <laughs> buy an ETF. And we're like, oh, what's an ETF? Well, an ETF is an exchange-traded fund. And uh, conceptually, it is similar to a mutual fund in that like, it is a bucket of money where people can put them, you know, they can invest in it, and it will buy stocks and shares on behalf of you and track some benchmark, or you know, they even have actively managed ones these days. So the, the line between mutual fund and ETF is blurring, but the difference is that an ETF is something that is under um, very strong fee pressure. Your money is not locked into an ETF because if you have a brokerage account, you can move in and out of that brokerage account in a matter, or sorry, in and out of that ETF in a matter of seconds. Uh, whereas with a mutual fund, it's usually locked away in a bank. There's an advisor there. Uh, you can't. You usually don't have direct access to it, so you can't just say, "I want to change what my money is doing," or "I want to pull out of this mutual fund and bring it to another institution." There's a lot more friction involved on the mutual fund side, and I think that's what keeps the fees high there. But is this where either, maturity of a mutual fund plays into it? Like, is, is that a word that uh, that weaves into the conversation about mutual funds and, and like being able to withdraw your money from it? Uh, maturity is just something that is like a recurrent word uh, in my research about mutual funds. It's not something that we, we quite understand. Uh, it depends. Some mutual funds have uh, like they, they have a maturity date and that there's like a target fund. So you could say, I target to retire in 2050. So I'm going to buy a 2050 target retirement mutual fund. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that it starts off um, very heavy on equities and gradually moves more into bonds and fixed income as you get older, which reduces your risk profile as you get older. Right. And then around 2050, the whole idea is that like you shouldn't be investing in this anymore because it's pure bonds. You might you just take your money out, right? So you could look at it that way. Uh, you could look at maturity in terms of like if you're buying GICs, so guaranteed investment certificates. That's the sort of thing where you say, um, you know, give $10,000 to your bank and put it in a GIC. And they say, great, you're locking away this money. You're giving us this $10,000, not a savings account. It is a GIC where we have this money for a fixed amount of time and we will pay you a fixed amount of money for that fixed amount of time. So in that case, the maturity would be when the GIC expires. Yeah, wicked. That that makes a lot of sense. I've I've like so many questions, but I'm gonna try not to derail this conversation. I feel like a monkey, honestly. It's I'm having so much fun listening to you talk about this because I've read about it, and sometimes the materials that I find are so dry that it's just more fun to learn about crypto because it's new and I'm coming and everything is ever changing. But you explaining it the way that you are, I want to listen, and I'm I, I honestly just feel like a monkey sitting in front of a TV, absorbing all of this information. Yeah. So thank you so much, by the way. So yeah, yeah, no problem. It's all good. I'm, I'm so fascinated by the fact that uh, you decided to move your career, shift your career to starting passive and all of the events that led to that were essentially you realizing, you realizing that, Oh, in 40 years time or 50 years time, I'm going to end up giving $1.3 million to this advisor if I don't do something about it. So I like, at least from this conversation, I'm thinking that that was the trigger point for you to say, okay, I'm going to look for an alternative because I, I don't really want to give $1.3 million worth of my money that sh- should be mine, uh, away to an advisor and I can do this myself. And then I'm sure multiple other events led to you founding Passive. Is that right? Or uh, that's, what that's other exactly events? Right. 
Yeah. That's awesome. Like, are there any other significant events that led you to be like, okay, I'm going to solve this problem for other people too, because I'm sure they must have it. Yeah, for sure. So it didn't start as me trying to solve the problem for other people. It started as me being like, I'm a software developer and this is a pain. I'm just going to write a Python script to do it for me. Right. And that yeah. was a weekend project. So uh, the broker that I held my, my investments with is Questrade. And Questrade actually happened to have a developer API. And I was like, oh, this is marvelous. I'm a software <laughs> developer. I'm just going to write a bit of code that goes and does this for me. And so I, that, that was like a weekend project and it worked well. And I used that personally for about a year. And uh, I, was, I was pleased with myself. I was like, I've got this figured out. This is marvelous. And as I talked to friends of mine who were also, you know, kind of getting into investing, and I told them what I do. They were like, that sounds, that's really cool. Can you give me that script? And <laughs> I was like, well, I could give you the script, but you don't know the first thing about software. So you probably wouldn't be able to use it effectively. So um, that was sort of a turning point for me, you know, six months to a year after writing the script where I realized there's lots of other people who have this problem and my script is not going to solve the problem for everyone. It might solve it for me, but it's not for everyone. So um, I essentially said, I'm going to take the script and I'm going to turn it into something a little more general purpose, like a website where people can go and like type in their current portfolio and we'll do the trade calculations and figure out here are the things you need to do with your money in order to track your target. And that was the original thing. And nobody used it. That was all that was live on the internet for like six months. And then we would have had like eight people come in and like try it and walk away. And it's just like, clearly this is not what people want. And that was when like, I didn't even use it myself because I had my script and my script was actually better than this site. And the key thing that was better about it was that it had direct access to my brokerage account. So it could not only read my current positions and compare them to a consistent target and generate these trade calculations, but it could also place those orders for me. And the- You made a bot. Basically, yeah. And then okay. the public website that I had was not the same thing at all because it, uh, it didn't have access to the user's brokerage account, right? Like there was, no, there was no way to link your account and give it trading permissions and so on, right? So it was, it was not that much better than Excel spreadsheet. And that was the realization I had a few months after doing this was like, I've done something and it's, it's kind of sort of works, but it's not really helpful enough that people are going to want to use it. And that's when I thought, if I'm going to do this, it needs to be in a way where people can actually have accounts and then they can link their brokerage account directly to it. And then I can maintain a profile of how they want their investments to work and then continuously compare it to their actual holdings and help them follow their target. And that was that was like the seed that started Passive. So I built a working prototype of this. At least it worked on my account. It didn't work on anybody else's account at that point, but it was like a full-blown web application that would do this. And uh, I found a co-founder, the other, the other Brendan, who was interested in helping out. He, he had a pretty uh, solid investing background and immediately understood what I was doing and why I was doing it. And uh, we had sort of uh, compatible um, skill sets. So we're like, all right, let's work on this together. And then we went and launched it. So probably about a month, between one and two months from when like the two of us agreed to work on this together, we launched it publicly. And it was an absolute disaster. <laughs> the reason it was a disaster is because it only worked with my account and it had never been tested with anyone's account but mine. So right. even though I had implemented all the stuff that um, in theory it should have worked according to the documentation that I was reading on this brokerage, I'd never actually tested it with another account because they didn't have another account, you know, and they're not going to just let me open another random brokerage account in my name. Right. So uh, it didn't work. We had like 30 or 40 people sign up and they're all like, Hey, this thing's not connecting. It's throwing errors. Why is that? And uh, that's when we kind of went back and realized, oh, this is a personal app. It's not, it's not, we haven't received permission from the broker to build on their API and provide a service to all their other customers. So there was like now all of a sudden this legal hurdle 
that we had to overcome to even offer the service. So that was like a bit of a, a punch in the gut, but it also made us realize like, if we want to do this, um, we need to work with the brokers. You can't just go run this on your own and expect to have everything work hunky-dory. They want to know who's using their API. They have certain legal compliance procedures they want to run, right? So um, that was when we started meeting with Questrade and you know, we eventually got an API partnership agreement and relaunched and people started using it. And it was like a very kind of gradual growth sort of thing. Like most things. <laughs> yeah, like most things, right? Like yeah. uh, it's, it's easy to launch something and expect it to be an overnight success. And the reality is that like, no, that's not really how it works. You might get a few people off the bat, but you need to listen to them, take their feedback and grow it. You know, you have to treat it like a little plant that you've got in your greenhouse and you're gradually watering it and picking the weeds out, you know, that sort of thing. Did you ever think to use the same implementation as you have with what your request rate account with any of your cryptocurrency exchanges? Yes. Well, that was like one of my motivations because the type of investing that I was doing with my ETFs is the same sort of thing I was doing with crypto, except I was doing it all manually with crypto because I didn't trust any exchange to hold all my coins, as you can imagine. So I meant I was running, you know, full nodes on 10 or 15 different blockchains. And uh, whenever I needed to rebalance, it would be like, cool, I need to do some crazy calculations and take a certain amounts of each of these coins and ship them to the exchange that supports it. And, you know, it was just such a tedious thing. Uh, there was no... It, was, it, was, it wasn't something I could bake into the product at that point, but that is something that we added to the product uh, last year. So about eight months ago, we launched our first crypto support with Passive, and now it's like a native asset class that you can use within the app, just like you would any other sort of stocks or ETFs. You can even make um, combined portfolios where you have uh, stocks and crypto as a part of the same overall target, and you can balance them together and move money back and forth and so on. When you use the word balance, what are you talking about when you say you want to balance your portfolios? Uh, the idea is that um, if you have an investment target where um, you have like an idea of how you want your, your investments to be allocated. Can you give um, me an example of an investment? Yeah, you, so, so you could say, I want 40% um, of my money in Bitcoin and 30% in Ethereum and 20% uh, in uh, I don't know, Cardano or like you know, one of the other ones, right? Um, basically, like if you assign target weights to each of these assets, you want to maintain those target weights. And if the markets change, if Bitcoin does really well, then you might go from a 40% target in Bitcoin and have a 60% actual exposure to Bitcoin. And if that's the case, then your portfolio isn't aligned with your investment targets. It, in fact, it might be riskier than, than what you're comfortable with because you're so heavily concentrated in one coin or one investment, however you want to picture it. So the idea is that as the markets change, your portfolio will probably move out of balance to some extent, and you need to take some sort of action to make sure that it maintains that balance so it continues to follow your investments. And can your can customers of Passive rebalance their portfolios using Passive? Yes, that is the primary use case. I mean, well, it's not just rebalancing, but it's also allocating new cash. So if you're adding money every month, we make sure it gets put in the right place so you're always on target. Okay. Well, I actually didn't know that Passive had a cryptocurrency uh, feature or aspect to it. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, for sure. So we support three crypto exchanges right now. So we support Kraken, uh, BitBuy, which is right here in Canada, which is awesome, and Unocoin, which is an Indian uh, exchange. Oh, wait, tell me more. What was the last one? Unocoin. Unocoin. Oh, that's funny. I haven't heard of that. It's an exchange? Unocoin? It's, it's, it's an exchange. Yeah. I think oh. they're one of the largest in India. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I need to redo my research on Indian exchanges. 
Cool. Yeah. So we, we support those three exchanges and we treat them kind of like you would a brokerage account where people fund them with, with money, like fiat currency, and you can buy and sell whatever cryptos they support. And so we treat cryptos just like any other investable security on passive. And you can create a target to say, I want, you know, 40% Bitcoin, 30% Ethereum and work your way down however you want to do it. And we will just help you automate that portfolio and take care of all the trades for you. Wow. Really? Awesome. So it's kind of like the functionality of a bot, except there is a better and more user-friendly interface to have it operate that way. Exactly. You don't need to be a programmer. It's designed for people who have like no programming background at all. All you need is an idea of how you want your investments allocated across cryptocurrencies or traditional stocks or what have you. And with respect to, let's say, take, say let's take Kraken, for example. If, um, if I have an account in Kraken and I want to use passive, like, do I have to send money to Kraken and then I can change or I can make whatever adjustments I want to have done with that fiat on my passive account? Yes. Yeah. So we don't hold the money ourselves. That was one of the early decisions we made is we want to be a software company, not a broker and not an advisor. We don't want to actually touch your money ourselves. Um, And that enables us to like work across lots of different countries because the regulatory burden is very different in our case. Like we're not actually doing anything with your money. Everything is self-directed, meaning that the account owner is the is the one responsible for making the trades. So are you a money services business at this point then? Or no, no we don't we don't uh, like no money passes through us other than what people pay us for the product. <laughs> right. Right on. So That's there's cool. okay, so people subscribe to passive and wouldn't they have to connect their um exchange through an API to passive? Yes. Wouldn't it wouldn't that be hard for people who don't understand how to do that? Um, it depends. Most um, So well, crypto exchanges are a little bit different from brokerages, but most brokerages, if you want to connect, um, you're, you're in your passive interface and you click on the um, icon for your broker. So you could say like TD Ameritrade or Questrade, and we will ship you over to your brokerage. You can log in there. Your brokerage will say, hey, passive is asking for access to your account. Do you want to approve it? And they say yes. And then we get a token which allows us to query their account and uh, place trades on it if that's what they've granted permission for and so on. And so crypto exchanges are very similar, except that um, I don't think any crypto exchange we work with at the moment has an OAuth integration, which which is like the, the nice flow where they ask you these questions. Instead, the way they work is you would go into Kraken and you would say, generate API key, and you can kind of choose what permissions you want. And then at the end of the day, you get a key and you paste that into passive where we ask for it. And it's it's similar. It's a little more technical for crypto, but it's at the end of the day, it's it's not that different. Which one do you prefer as a technical person that uh, needs to focus on security and and the um, the security assurances that you provide to your users? I don't I prefer understand. OAuth. You prefer OAuth. So I'm oh. wondering, like, okay, as far as the flow goes, like, is there one that is objectively more secure than the other, or is it just a, a trade-off in user experience? Is it? Uh, like- I, I think it's. I think it's hard to say objective because I. I'm very. I feel like I'm very objective when I say I prefer OAuth. But um, I know, like, I've spoken to uh, some of the the developers at Kraken, and their security team apparently is very adamant that OAuth is less secure than a standard API key which I don't understand their reasoning for that, but um, they have highly paid security professionals who believe that. So, you know. Yeah, right on. I know that the the API key is is a standard in the in the crypto space. I have never 
like like you said, there's zero crypto exchanges that have done the OAuth flow. And uh, yeah, so I'm just indulging my own questions here, Murga. You should yeah. get us back on track. <laughs> well, yeah, so I, I'm wondering, you started off passive as um, something for traditional investors in the traditional investing space. Once you um, added the crypto feature to it too, how is the response? Did you, like, did you have newcomers to passive because of crypto? And also compared to whoever was already on passive with you, um, did they have, did they want to have a crypto portfolio as well because of the feature that you added? We built it primarily for our existing users who were more traditional oh. investors. Uh, we surveyed our users and found that about 30% of them held crypto. And we're like, that's kind of amazing. That's, that's yeah. higher than the average, right? Uh, so yeah. you know, I think our audience is already pretty nerdy and they were already into that sort of thing. And it's, it's interesting because, um, some of the responses we got were like, no, how dare you ask me if I hold crypto? Uh, that's, a, that's an improper thing to do. And uh, you should never do anything that touches crypto. That'd be sketchy, right? And then this other swath was like, that'd be amazing if I could like just have crypto as a part of my portfolio. That'd be wonderful. So we ended up doing it that way and uh, just making it like it's an optional feature. You know, if you don't want to add crypto, don't add crypto. It's fine. And how has the result been? Like, are you happy with the fact that this feature has been added? And is it also attracting new clientele, a new clientele to your to passive? It is, yeah. Um, we haven't actually pushed the marketing side of it that much. Um, we're still, I guess, we, we're still not at like one hundred percent feature parity. One of the things that we have on our standard brokerage accounts is like this really advanced reporting, um, which gives us. Uh, like a nice view of your entire portfolio history. And so you can connect to Passive and we'll go pull your entire history and produce like this beautiful report of how you've been doing over the years, which is awesome. Uh, the crypto accounts, we're still waiting for that functionality to catch up and we're, we're almost there, but uh, we didn't want to do a massive announcement about it when like one of these things still doesn't work perfectly. Are you able to share the demographic of people that were like, yes, we already hold crypto, this feature would be great. Uh, you know, we didn't do a demographic breakdown of that. Uh, we looked at... Um, like we, we have kind of overall demographics for our app. So our, our main, um, probably you could say 80% of our customers are in like the 25 to 40 age range. Uh, we have, you know, people all over the space. We have people as young as 18. And we have, I think the oldest person I have yet heard is like 84 using our platform. So wow. it's, it's quite broad, but it's definitely concentrated in like the young adult, early career sort of thing. Right on. And and with respect to crypto, I mean, so passive, is that your full-time job right now? And how involved are, are you still with the crypto world? Oh yeah. So passive, passive is absolutely a full-time thing. Like we're, we're a real company. We have, we have 10 <laughs> full-time employees. Uh, so like we are making a go of it and it's, it's producing enough money to be sustainable for the company, which is awesome. Congratulations on that. Yeah, you right. said that, well, you said that you're with an Indian exchange as well. So how, where is your audience? Is it all over the, it's, how, it's, prim it's primarily North America. You could even say it's primarily Canada because that's where we started. Uh, for the first two years that the company was around, we only supported Questrade in Canada. So as you can imagine, that gave us a very like Canadian centric bias. Uh, but we now support um, is it 11 or 12 different like brokers and exchanges around the world. So um, the last time we checked, uh, we had customers in 40 countries, which is pretty cool. Wow, that is exciting to hear. And are they all catching on to the crypto side of um, passive as much as the stock side of it? I don't think so. Not yet. Anyway, um, we're as time goes on, we're definitely getting more and more interesting in uh, the crypto side of things. But it's still uh, very heavily oriented towards people investing in stocks and ETFs, which 
I find interesting. You know, I, I feel like crypto is, is a growing space and we haven't seen the end of the crypto tale. We're a long way away from seeing what this is going to become in the long run. So um, I'm, I'm fascinated to see where it goes. And I think it's going to keep growing for us. So I want to know about whether or not in your financial literacy journey, the way that you learned about investing um, and grew your knowledge base there, did you um, did you stumble upon understanding money and how the fiat system works? And did you have any thoughts and opinions there? Yeah. So when I first learned about Bitcoin, that was what, what got me thinking about the fiat thing. I think I took fiat for granted for most of my life. And when I became aware of Bitcoin and read up on it and started understanding how it works, that's when I was kind of like, this whole fiat thing is largely arbitrary. I mean, it's all, it's in the name, right? Fiat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I never really even uh, looked at it that way until I was like, oh, here's, here's like a totally independent competitor to the entire fiat world. And it's something that exists outside the control of nation states. And uh, it was just such a fascinating thing to look at. And, you know, a, a lot of people ask me, like, what's the value of crypto? What's the point of it? Isn't it something that doesn't, like, have any, you know, real world value? What can I, what, I can't eat a Bitcoin, right? What's that worth? <laughs> and one of my favorite answers to give is that, well, it, at the very minimum, it's competition to the fiat ecosystem, right? The fact that this exists and that it's usable and there's really not much that any government can do to stop it means that it's pressure on the fiat system to manage themselves more effectively, right? So um, if you're worried about hyperinflation and there being no alternative to it, it was like, well, there will always be a turn an alternative now, which means that governments need to govern themselves and their currencies more carefully because there is a competitor ready to swoop in and and you know, take over. It's not necessarily Bitcoin. Bitcoin has kind of evolved in a way where it's uh, less focused on cash than than it once was in the early days. But there's so much diversity in in the cryptocurrencies that are out there that you know one of them could very easily come in and uh, dominate the world's economy as like the go-to uh, currency. Uh, you know, I think we're still a long way from that actually happening. But having that as like a, a possibility is really exciting. And I, I think it's it's a good thing for the world as a whole. Okay, so so many questions there. Yeah, I'm and, gonna keep it <laughs> And because I'm, I'm thinking that Keegan and I, we, it's called go full crypto because we were like, we're not gonna, we don't wanna deal with the banks very much anymore. And we opted out of traditional finance. And I guess one of the reasons for that was also because we, we just were more excited to learn about how to navigate the cryptocurrency world instead of learning how to navigate the crypto finance, traditional finance world. And when we discovered um, money and the the difference between fiat and the belief of what money is, and what value or money is. <laughs> is what you believe it to be and yeah, where value can be found with money. And you were like, well, if we start investing in stocks or even try to do that, that means we're indirectly trusting in fiat or investing in the fiat standard. And we don't really want to do that because that is risky for us. That's that's where my question is. Um, yeah, I want to like circle back to risk because I've, I've got a specific question about that, but go, you know, go ahead. No, there. no, no, but that was it. So, you know, you knowing that you have learned about the fiat and the possible risk of hyperinflation, not possible, but I guess inevitable risk of hyperinflation, um, how does that latch on to traditional investments? Because they're all denominated in fiat. They're, they are denominated in fiat, but they are not necessarily valued only in fiat. So um, if you're experiencing hyperinflation, 
um, holding equity in a profitable company is actually one of the ways you can ride out that sort of hyperinflation, you know, like the value of the, like, I kind of wonder if that's what we've seen since since uh, COVID started, right? Like these, this massive boom in the markets. Is it actually a boom in the markets or is it a massive amount of inflation and uh, it just hasn't hit the store shelves yet, you know? And I think that's kind of an open question. Um, but holding something other than the fiat currency directly is the way you ride out inflation, whether you're holding hard assets like gold or you're having food stores or you're holding ownership in a company that's actually producing value on an ongoing basis. It almost doesn't matter what it's denominated in. So, so do, you, do you find that, uh, and I'm going to like muddle my way through this. Such uh, an interesting s- answer, by the this way. Question. Yeah. Well, I agree with you, actually. I agree with everything that you said. If I was to guess, then I would say that the boom in the market since March 2020 is a result of basically injection of, of newly printed money into the economy to, to stimulate it all, rather than an actual appreciation in the value that these businesses are bringing. It's both, uh, but it's, uh, is, if, is it one more than the other? Um, and I lost with respect my... to risk. Yeah. With respect to risk, I've, I've got a couple of questions um, with, with the GIC and how it's actually like yielding negative returns. Uh, and that's, that's a, a basic certainty now, right? Like we've got inflation at something like five or 6% and these GICs yielding much, much less than that. Your actual real yield over any course of time is, is negative. And see, that doesn't seem like a risk to me. That just seems like a loss. And like is, but yet the, the prevailing narrative is still that the GICs are the, the least risky thing that you can put your money in because of that, that G word, that guarantee. And I'm wondering if, if your company has reconciled that and brought that factor into the formulas that you use to balance risk in your in, in the portfolios that you manage. What's a GSE? Uh, yeah, a guaranteed investment certificate from the government. It's when okay. the government uh, sells debt to the public and then they owe, owe the public money. Is that like a bond? That's like a bond. Is it, that it is a, a bond? bond? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong there, Brendan, anywhere I misspoke. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not always um, government related, but like it's it's something that would be issued by a bank or possibly a government to to provide that sort of thing. I, I think I agree with you like that GICs are often a net loss, you know, in terms of inflation and everything. Uh, but it's also like guaranteed in that if you put it in something else, you might do worse. Right. So and if you hold it in cash, well, you're going to eat that inflation anyway. Right. Um, I I'm having I'm really enjoying this conversation. Um, I just realized that I actually have another meeting that's like started a minute ago. Uh, do you guys want to like like pick this up again and like in a, in a few days or what, what are you thinking? Um, I think we can do a part two. Yeah, let's do a part two because there's yeah. so much more that we want to talk about too. But this is a great introduction to passive and how you came to in, not invent but innovate and uh, form found passive in the first place. Before you go and before we get to recording part two days later, uh, where can people find you? You can find us at passive.com. P-A-S-S-I-V.com. Okay, and what about you, Brendan? Me personally, um, I don't have too much of like a social media presence. I'm like a little bit of a recluse. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you could find me on LinkedIn, uh, but honestly, the best way to find me is like if you want to get in touch with me, just reach out to Passive, and like you know, we'll, and- we'll find a way to connect you if, if anyone wants to touch. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time and the the first part of this conversation and everybody listening. I hope you uh, have enjoyed and taken a lot of value from Brandon. Look forward to part two because it's going to be an interesting one for sure. Thanks so much. Looking forward to it too.